Turn, if you will, to Exodus 19. We have, uh, we were in Colossians. Remember Colossians in Asia Minor. It's on the trailhead of all the trade routes going through that part of the world. And because of it, it was subject to uh, I don't know, aberrations coming into the church, worldly philosophies, false spiritualities. And these <clears throat> false spiritualities come in to obscure, to blur, and to diminish Jesus Christ, the true Christ. Nothing new under the sun. All of that's happening today. It's been a warfare for 2,000 years. Uh, People like to say, oh, I wish we could be the New Testament church. Well, we are the New Testament church. Uh, The New Testament church in every generation has been a battleground. No surprise that church history is riddled with debate, discussion, Um, challenges because Satan is always trying to obscure the gospel. We have landed on Colossians 1.18 where Paul just specifically states that Jesus is the head of the body of the church. He has talked about Jesus being the firstborn of all creation in previous verses. Now he is also, in addition to being the one through whom the universe was brought into being, the one for whom the universe was brought into being, He is also the head of the body of the church. Now head in this context, again, it means a place of primacy and authority. And the scope of Christ's headship is this entity called simultaneously the body and the church. And we just must remember that. And again, I just, when you say you're going to go to church, then say, oh, am I going to go to body? It's not wrong to say you're going to go to church. I mean, that's just a sort of a standard phrase we use, but always put in there, oh, I'm going to go to body too. Remember this, let it stick in your craw so that you will always be reminded what church really is. You can't go to body. Um, We are the body of Christ. So Paul very clearly here in other places shows that the body is the church and the church is the body. When there's an equal sign, what's on one side equals what's on the other side. One plus one equals... All right. Okay, what's on one side equals what's on the other side. So that's always important to know. Now the terminology that Paul uses have some, has some distinction. Church tends to come from the Old Testament, look backward, comes and it, it gathers all of these types, shadows, symbols, promises, prophecies of the Old Testament and brings them into the realities in the New Covenant. So church kind of looks backward and brings us forward. Whereas body starts with <clears throat> present or where we are in, in the history of redemption and describes the realities and expands the realities that the church was but a type and shadow of in the Old Testament. So we decided, or I decided, and you all agreed to sit here and listen. Uh, <clears throat> so I'm going to say we decided. Uh, we have been looking at the terminology of church. And the first thing to know is church is a Greek word, ekklesia. Most of you have heard that before. If you haven't heard it before, you've heard it here. And in the Old Testament, it's used to, uh, or it's it's translated by terms assembly, congregation. That's how it's kind of used. There's two Hebrew words behind that that have their own nuances. They have some distinction but they are also at times coordinated and used together. So ecclesia, ecclesia is about the assembly or the congregation. We looked at Deuteronomy 4 where Moses is speaking to the children of Israel about to go into the land of Canaan. He says, you remember back to that Mount Sinai experience, that Mount Horeb. And you remember where God said, assemble the people to me. And so 
<clears throat> we'll be getting there in a minute, but this is just a sort of a core use of assembly. It's the verb, assemble the people to me. And then we saw in Exodus 12, the Passover, speak to all the congregation of Israel. And as you get to the end of that passage, you see that these are used simultaneously. You shall keep it, this lamb, until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. So there those two terms are coordinated together. So <clears throat> ecclesia, wherever it's used, has this Old Testament, this rich Old Testament background of assembly and congregation. They have nuances, but they are in general simultaneous and synonymous. Then we start looking at the church as the people of God, ecclesia, as the people of God. This concept is inherent in assembly. It's not just, oh, something will tack on. It's, it's part of the core sense of what this assembly is. Uh, there is explicit statement and definition throughout the Old Testament. And I just want to remind you again that this is a, probably one of the greatest questions and issues that the New Testament addresses. Who are the people of God? It's not some category among many categories in systematic theology. Systematic theology is great in many ways, but it's also deceptive because it trains you to think of Bible truth in terms of specific and separate categories. And that is not how the Word of God comes to us. The Word of God comes to us with this rich, blended, organic realities of truth that everything's sort of molded into everything. <clears throat> but the great question that emerges in the New Testament is who are the people of God? Paul battled this his whole life with the Judaizers who tried to redefine the church as really <clears throat> Gentiles who become Jews plus circumcision. That's the true people of God. And Paul says, no, that's not the true people of God. So it's a big issue. Uh, no small thing. So when you hear about it, your ears should perk up a bit. Now there's whole theologies, by the way, whole systems of theology that are based on the answer to this question. Who are the people of God? Dispensationalism, which many of you might think is about the second coming because it does have an emphasis and focus on the future. But dispensationalism is not fundamentally about the future. Dispensationalism is fully grounded upon a radical distinction between national Israel and the church. That is dispensationalism. The rapture is not. It's an expression of, but it is not dispensationalism. You could have dispensationalism without the rapture, but you cannot have dispensationalism without a sense or a distinction between Israel and the church as two distinct entities having two distinct purposes and two distinct inheritances in the Word of God. So dispensationalism defines itself by answering this question, who are the people of God? Well, it's Jews versus Gentiles. Covenant theology, another <clears throat> theology out there that is uh, very prominent, and basically most of the church today falls into either dispensationalism or covenant theology. So you gotta sort of be one or the other. Covenant theology affirms an overarching principle, this covenant of grace, that is a principle overarching the history of redemption. And it says the principle of this covenant of grace is believers and their seed. So it's believers and their children. So again, covenant theology is very much defined by this answer to the question, who are the people of God? And so the covenant theologian, mostly Presbyterianism, <clears throat> they will say the people of God are believers in their seed. Dispensationalism says, no, the people of God are, you gotta separate Israel from the church. Covenant theology says, no, 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 that's not that. <clears throat> it's not that at all. Uh, we don't separate Israel and the church, but we incorporate infant children into the people of God. So New Covenant Theology comes along <clears throat> and it declares that the people of God refers to all genuine believers, whether Jew or Gentile, from the Garden of Eden to the Second Coming. All true believers are the people of God. So as we're going through these things, I don't want this to be polemical, but do tuck into the back of your mind that these are issues. And as you read these plain statements of the Bible, 
Who do you think are the true people of God? Now, because I'll be using this terminology possibly, I'm going to try to avoid it, but because I'll probably drop it here and there because it's a convenient term and it's a handle on a briefcase with a whole lot of stuff in it, so it's easy to just talk about the briefcase. And this briefcase is supersessionism. It's also called replacement theology. It's a view of Christian theology on the current status of the Christian church. That is, what is the church? And it asserts that the new covenant through Jesus Christ has superseded or replaced the Mosaic covenant. Superseded. It has taken over. Okay? You can be a manager, but <clears throat> when someone comes in and replaces you, you have been superseded. You are no longer the manager. No one long, any longer listens to you. They may not have listened much when you were the manager, but now for sure they're not going to listen to you. You will not be paid as a manager because you have been superseded. You have been replaced. All right? And so supersessionism is the idea that the church in the new covenant becomes the ultimate people of God. All right? Now, you may have heard a lot of bad things about this. I've, uh, it's been interesting. Um, I've had people say, uh, when, when you used to be able to get on threads, I can't get on them anymore. They're too, you know, crash, boom, bang. But it used to be you could get on them and, and have a decent discussion at least. But when it came to this, people would say, ah, oh, supersessionism, it's the spawn of Satan. If you believe in supersessionism, you're a heretic. You disbelieve the Bible. I mean, just all these radical things said about it. Now, I don't really like the term supersessionism. <clears throat> Because again, it becomes a handle that people attach a lot of ideas to, many of which I probably don't believe. You probably don't believe either. But what we do know is that in the new covenant, the people of God are the church of Jesus Christ. And you might remember in Ephesians where it says, we're the fullness of him that fills all in all. What does that term fullness mean? It's not so much a term of measurement <clears throat> that you know, old Israel was the halfness, and the church is now the fullness. I mean, it, it could mean that, that there's come to this fullness of quantity. But in reality, that term fullness is always accorded to the dispensation of the fullness of times. Ephesians chapter 1, where the term is used twice, fullness. Or Galatians chapter 4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. The fullness of time means that time in which Jesus Christ came into human history and established the kingdom of God in all of its permanent and eternal realities. The fullness of time is that time when all the types and shadows of the Old Testament are now replaced by the realities in Jesus Christ. Fullness is a redemptive historical term. It's talking about the history of redemption. There was a time of type and shadow, and now there's the time of fullness. And the church is now the fullness of him who fulfills all in all, dwells in all in all. The church is the ultimate permanent people of God. And that's just New Testament theology. That's why I don't call it, I want to call it supersessionism. It just, it turns to put a formal, technical, and even obscure title on something that is one of the richest teachings in the New Testament. We're not so much replacing as we are fulfilling. We are the fullness, that fulfillment of all of God's eternal purposes to have an eternal people of God for his name, dwelling in light with him unto the ages of the ages. Now, the other reason I brought this up is I need a vote. <clears throat> Gwen sort of told me the other day, I didn't realize it, that you all couldn't see the differences in color on my screen. I asked Chris about it. He said, yeah, it's kind of hard to see because he's always on the back row. Chris is a back row Baptist, by the way. Um, <clears throat> and so I want you to vote. When I look at this yellow, it just hurts my eyes, but it may be easy for you to see. And here's a little dimmer version. So which do you all prefer? The bright, shiny yellow or the dim yellow? Bright. 
What can I say? I'll leave that to her. Okay, so I'm here in bright, shiny yellow. Well, in uh, dim yellow, well, oh well. I'll just have to wear sunglasses when I prepare my screens. Okay. All right. Well, we've been pursuing this. What is the church of, what does the word ecclesia mean in the Old Testament? And we start to find that it's rich in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, it's foundational in the Old Testament. The ecclesia is the assembly. And the assembly is the covenant people of God. So we looked at Leviticus chapter 26, 11 through 13. I will establish my covenant. And the essence of this is that I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. Here's the true essence of being the people of God who are in covenant with God. God is infinite and majestic, and this infinite and majestic God will be your God. You are his inheritance and his possession. You will be my people. This is the essence of heart and soul of everything. Isn't it interesting that you can boil Christianity down to one sentence? Isn't it interesting how God does this? I mean, how many volumes have been written on this? How many messages am I preaching on this? And yet God just brings everything down to this one essence. You come to God in Christ and God becomes your God in all that he is. And you become part of his eternal possession. It's that simple. But the depth of that is going to take an eternity to unfold. I will walk among you. Be your God and you shall be my people. On our way to Exodus 19, which is where a covenant is established, the covenant that God is referring to there in, in Leviticus. And the Lord said to Moses when he's calling him to come and deliver the people, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. Again, our theme is the people of God. That's the true expression. It's a true nature of what it means to be the assembly of God. To be the assembly of God is to be the people of God. To be the people of God is to be the assembly of God. And here's the first instance in the Bible of my people referring to the Israelites. Transcends every kind of property ownership. You are my people. It's ownership of a deep and personal level. God owns human beings made in his image. There's other terminology. Oh, by the way, this just my people occurs 222 times in the Old Testament alone. Its ideas and concepts are multiplied more than that beyond just the term itself. Exodus 5.1, let my people go. That's the message to Pharaoh. And let my people go occurs 15 times just, just in about six chapters here. My people. So before we get to Exodus chapter 19, you already are introduced to my people as a big concept, as an underlying concept by which God is operating in the history of redemption. Exodus 19, 24, it's important to understand that this is a, a unit, six chapters. If you haven't read them together, I really encourage you to take some time today, this week, and just read them quickly. You don't have to absorb every word. Don't get bogged down, but just read them quickly to get a sense of what of this covenant with God. It begins at Mount Sinai with the preamble and the context of what's happening. Um, God speaks to the people directly from heaven in chapter 20 and in chapter 21 through 23. God gives ordinances to govern the nation that are all about righteousness. Okay, how to live a righteous life, how to live a just life <clears throat> in that time period under those circumstances in that culture. Then there's a, an admonition to keep this covenant and finally a ratification of the covenant in chapter 24. So Exodus 19, 1 through 3 begins by saying, hey, it's the wilderness of Sinai, camped in front of the mountain. Moses, you're to say this to the house of Israel. And there's the preamble, which we get to. And then it finishes with Exodus 24. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and behold the blood of the covenant. And after that, they have a covenant meal. So there's blood and then there's a meal before God. I almost feel like I'm at the Lord's Supper. It's, the New Testament has all of its background in the old, but it brings it into fullness, richness, reality in Jesus. And there's this blood of sprinkling. So we looked at Exodus 19. Now there's a reason I'm going through this, and you'll see in a minute. In Exodus 19, God says, you yourselves, this is the preamble to the covenant. This is what the covenant's all about. 
This is sort of the, uh, what would you say, the uh, um, executive summary of the covenant. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. This covenant is based on redemption, powerful redemption. God just didn't lead them out. He destroyed an entire nation, the greatest nation in, in that part of the world in that day. He destroyed them to save his people, to deliver them from the bondage. You've seen what I did. And I bore you on eagle's wings. This picture, it's all through the Bible. The eagle, in many places, cursed 33 times. But it's a poetic description of God's tender care and protection and nurture. I bore you on eagle's wings, and I brought you to myself. This is what covenant redemption is always all about. Genuine, personal relationship with God. So when someone says they're a Christian, what are they saying? I am in that new covenant that does what the old covenant could not do, as we'll see in Jeremiah. And that new covenant has brought me to know God. So how many people claim to be Christians? Oh, I'm a Christian, but they clearly do not know God. When God works in someone's life, he brings them to himself. Have you been brought to God? You may believe a lot of things about God, but have you been brought to God? And if you haven't, then say, okay, this is reality. I really don't know God. I know a lot about him, but I don't know him. And come to Jesus and say, oh, Lord God, Jesus Christ, you're the Savior. And I don't know the God that I know about. And I pray you would save me and bring me to know him and you. Because that's what it's all about. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, covenant comes with responsibility. You get married. It's a covenant. Do you just sit there? Okay, I got ma- married. I just get to sit down and enjoy. Or do you have responsibilities and obligations? It's a covenant of love. It's a covenant of the deepest relationship between two human beings. And yet it comes with obligations and responsibilities. The old covenant comes with obligations and responsibilities. The new covenant comes with obligations and responsibilities. Any idea that the new covenant, well, it's all of grace. There's some terminology I've encountered lately that's bandied about. Apparently it's a talking point I must have missed, but I don't get out much. So, but they talk about, well, we're going to rest in grace. I'm like, I don't even know what that means, resting in grace. It's just not a term or a concept in the Bible. It sounds more like a talking point from pop Christianity, the latest fad and how to dress up the Bible in the latest, you know, I'm going to go and, and drink coffee, smoke cigars, and talk about God. We have obligations. When grace comes... It comes to bring us to be more like Jesus. And it's absolutely an obligation. We are justified by faith apart from works because you can't be justified any other way. But we're sanctified also. Justification and sanctification are the two sides of a coin. And if you try to divorce them, I mean, if I gave you a coin that had heads on one side and heads on the other, what would you think? I either got this super rare coin that's worth millions of dollars, or this is bogus. Right? So when someone tries to give you a Christianity that has justification on one side, oh, and justification on the other, that's all it's about. (coughs) Justification and resting in grace, that's all it's about. (coughs) That's either a super duper Christianity that God revealed to them, or it's what? It's bogus. Just remember that. If you will indeed keep my voice and bear, <clears throat> heed my voice, obey my voice, keep my covenant, you're going to be my treasured possession. Man. So this is, this is terms you write in a, in a Hallmark card to your sweetie. You are my treasured possession, right? We are God's treasured possession. Here's his Hallmark card to each and every one of us. We're his possession. You will be my treasured possession. I brought you to myself. My treasured possession. Be my treasured possession from among all peoples. This is not just love. This is distinguishing love. 
It's love that they receive that others do not. It's a relationship that the Israelites enter into that others do not. It's from among all peoples. And by the way, the, the translations that don't have from in there, they are not reading either the Hebrew or the Greek of the Old Testament. Because both the inspired Hebrew and the translated Greek have from. And it should be there. It's important. For all the earth is mine. The earth is the Lord and the fullness is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God gets to do what he wants. You're going to be to me a kingdom of priests. And again, it's always bugged me the whole of my life when people, Christian life, and people would say, well, I'm a, we're priests to the Lord. Like Baptists really like to talk about the priesthood of believers. And because it's not really a big emphasis in the scriptures, the way they use it, I'm a Baptist, the way we use it, whatever, <clears throat> the way some Baptists use it, it's always just kind of bounced off my head. Thankfully, as a new Christian for 10 years, all I did was read the Bible, didn't read hardly any theology books. And so when I finally started hearing all this stuff, it's like, okay, that's just not sounding like the New Testament to me. And so when people would talk about, well, we're, you know, a man is a priest in his house and he brings his, his whole family to God like a priest would, it always seemed to be to be missing the mark. But I couldn't figure out what the issue was and just it wasn't an issue I determined to think about. I would just go, that's just not sounding right. And it still doesn't sound right to me. And so I think that when it says here, you're a kingdom of priests to me, think about what a priest is. A priest is someone who has access to God. A priest is someone who stands before God and is accepted with God. A priest is someone who is in this capacity that God, he's in the courts of God, transacting the business of God. He doesn't have to necessarily represent others to have this dimension of being before God. And so the best that I can come up with on kingdom of priests and the way it's used throughout the scripture, and it's used in the New Testament, is that as a kingdom of priests, here is a group of people who before were like the rest of the nations, were alienated from God, the life of God, without God and without hope in the world. And now God has brought them near and invested them with dignity and honor and standing before him. You are priests. You can stand in the presence of God. And you got some clothing. <clears throat> You're royalty, as we'll see. And a holy nation enough said, the people of God are supposed to be holy. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is how Israel is to understand their relationship to me. This is the charter of the covenant. This is what it's all about. This is why it's being brought into being. I'm establishing this covenant with this nature and this definition and these perspectives and these items. This is what it starts with. All of the rest of the obedience is based here. And that's why as this generation, your generation really has taken upon itself to talk about the identity of the people of God. Know who you are. You hear that a lot these days. You didn't used to hear that. At least not in my day. You had to figure it out for yourself. But today a lot of preachers are doing well and, and they're saying, hey, you need to know who you are as a Christian. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. These are the words that they should be defined by and meditate on and take to heart so that they will live these, these things out. And so again, we have this simple statement of what is being related to God? Who are the people of God? They are a treasured possession. They are chosen. They are a kingdom of priests. They are a holy nation. Is this your self awareness do you see yourself as these things or do you listen to the adversary the devil when he comes and casts his fairy dust in your brain and starts telling you you're you know God just doesn't love you I mean his favorite with me is Steve you don't even like yourself how, could, how do you think God's going to like you Well, here's how I'm supposed to think about it. Here's what I'm supposed to do when Satan comes with that. 
Sorry, Satan. Wrong again. I'm God's treasured possession. I don't understand why. I don't see it. But I am. And so are you. You've had an awful week. You've had an awful day. You've had an awful hour. Do you see yourself still as God's treasured possession? So that you can pick yourself up in the reality of that. And do what you have to do to restore your relationship with God. God's done what he has to do. He sent his son. He's poured out his blood. He's established a just basis for forgiveness. <coughs> There's things you have to do. And part of it is to stand here in faith no matter if Satan is there blowing on you with gale force, you are God's treasured possession. You've been chosen by God, as we'll see in a week or two, what that means. And you are a kingdom of priests. You're part of this group. You have standing before God. And you're a holy nation. This is, how, again, how you regard one another. Or do you let gossip creep in? Do you let bitterness creep in? Do you let pride creep in? Do you let divisions creep in that just should not be there? We are all all these things. This should define us. Now before we go forward, the Psalms use another term, and I'm only bringing this up because of we're going to be going to the New Testament. I felt last week we started the New Testament, but just didn't have time to really do it justice. And so, because we're going to go into the New Testament and some other terminology is going to come up, understand that all over the Bible, a synonym for the people of God is that you are the inheritance of God. Psalm 28, 9, save your people and bless your inheritance. In true Hebrew <clears throat> parallelism, save your people is the same as bless your inheritance. They're parallel. So save and bless are parallel, and your people and your inheritance are parallel. They are synonyms. One perhaps brings out an angle that the other does not, and so they maybe complement each other, but they both have this clear synonymous theme. The people of God are the inheritance of God. Psalm 33, 12, we see this again. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. I mean, where does this terminology come from? Anybody? Where did the psalmist get this terminology? Where did the psalmist 500 to 1,000 years later get this terminology of a people whose God is the Lord? Where did that come from? <coughs> is that not what we've been reading in Leviticus? Is that not what we've been reading in Exodus? A people whose God is the Lord. And a nation. <coughs> if I was to yell out all the words, the whole thing would be yellow just about. But a nation, where, do we, where does he get this idea from? Exodus 19. A people, Exodus 19, whom he has chosen, Exodus 19, for his own inheritance. A synonym for possession in Exodus 19. And so this term inheritance is very much a synonym that we should be using. So we come to Ephesians and the New Covenant. That was kind of a long intro. Not sure where it turned from intro to part of a new message. But why don't we pray and ask the Lord to finish the rest of this message? We are unconventional here. At least I am, you know. So um, if this sort of crosses your conventions, I'm sorry, I apologize, but uh, I don't know that there will ever be a time that I won't be unconventional. So, uh, that's all I can say. So why don't we just pray. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne and we think of all these Old Testament types, shadows, promises, prophecies, symbols. Lord, they're all pictures designed to convey to our minds and hearts 
things that uh, paragraphs can't even convey. Or to say that we're in your inheritance, it takes paragraph and paragraph to expound what that really means, and you, you just collect all of that expanded material and ball it up and put it in one word, we're your inheritance, or we're your possession, or we are your people, or we are treasured, or we are chosen. Or these are all dimensions of ecclesia, of church, of the assembly that you want us to know and you want us to regard and you want us to think about. It's supposed to determine our hearts, our minds, our understanding, our lives. It defines us. It's our framework in which we breathe every day. It's our core identity. It's our identity personally. It's our identity together. And so, Lord, as we look into the New Covenant Scriptures, those passages of your word that were written once the New Covenant had been established, those passages that were written to expound upon things that could not be expounded until Jesus had come and died and risen and been exalted to your right hand and poured out the Holy Spirit. And the gospel has gone to all nations. That ultimate expression of covenant, that ultimate expression of the people of God. Lord, fill our minds and hearts with this. Let it be a blessing to us this morning. Let it encourage us. Let it reprove us where we've been lacking. But Lord, only you can do that. I can, I can read your scriptures. I can try to take words and turn them into paragraphs of explanation. But Lord Jesus, only you can give the real sense and power and grace and love and joy of these things. I cannot. Chris cannot. No one here can. We can't even do it for ourselves, much less for anybody else. Lord, only you can reach into the human heart by your Holy Spirit and fill us with the glory and light of these things. And just pray you would do it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, some passages. Paul prays for the Ephesians, and he says, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. Thanks. Pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. When Paul is thinking of what can I do for all these people that have been saved through my ministry and saved by those who have been saved through my ministry. Because Paul opened the door of the gospel in so many places. What is my great concern? Sure, the first great concern was to preach the gospel to unbelievers, but once those that have believed, they've been saved, and they're in the kingdom, and they're in Christ, what's my greatest burden for them? And the letter to the Ephesians is awesome because it's pretty much a generic letter. It was a circular letter. It maybe was written from Ephesus, or Ephesus was the first big recipient of it, but it was meant to be disseminated among all churches. And Paul says, hey, I'm praying. The first three chapters are actually one big long prayer. I'm praying that the eyes of your heart, that internal part of you that has the true sense and essence of things, our intellect can frame things and articulate them intellectually, but with the heart we understand things. And Paul says, here's my deep prayer. It is my prayer for all the saints. I want the eyes of your heart to be enlightened, something only God can do. Paul can't do it. All the other preachers can't do it. Peter can't do it. Enlighten the eyes of their heart. Lord, this is my deep desire for all my brethren. Deep, deep desire for all the saints. It's something you should consider when you're praying, and you're praying for things beyond yourself, which you should spend a lot of time for. Pray that the eyes of the hearts of everybody will be enlightened all around the world. Saints all around the world. The eyes of their heart will be enlightened. For what? So that you will know what is the hope of his calling? 
God has called you, kaleo. Remember, ecclesia is ek kaleo. You would know what is the hope of God's calling. When the gospel comes, God reaches into human hearts and he brings them to Christ. That's the concept of calling in the New Testament. It's more than just an invitation. It's the actual effect of God's grace bringing people to respond to that gospel effectively. It's the hope of his calling. But he also wants us to know something. Paul says, I pray that all of believers will understand what they get out of this salvation. What is their hope? But I also want all believers everywhere and every place to know, Lord God, what you get out of this. What does God get? You get him. He gets you. Now you look in the mirror and you're, you're thinking, well, you know, God gets a raw deal. So if you get raw deals in your life, just remember, God gets the, the rawest of deals ever, okay? If you just look at yourself in your own tattered rags of sin and quirkiness and however else you evaluate yourself. But Paul wants us to understand what God gets when your salvation is finished. What does God get in that final day? When that great and awful day of judgment has been done. When the last unbelieving sinner has been brought to reckon with who God is and what they have rejected for the whole of their life. And God gives them what they wanted. An existence without God. And all that that entails. He wants us to know when all is said and done, when we are raised from the dead and our bodies are glorified, and Romans 7 is no more because our bodies are glorified. What does God get out of all of this? He gets a people perfected in holiness with new bodies able to stand in his presence and not die. 100% free from sin, which is impossible for us to imagine. Able to dwell fully in his presence, fully accepted, fully exonerated in the righteousness of his eternal son forever. He gets a whole pile of saved sinners who are now glorified. The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Another term you could trace through the Old Testament into the New for the people of God. Do you pray this? When you're having a hard time properly valuing your brothers and sisters in Christ, which happens, you just wake up crabby, you want to kick over park benches and beat up little old ladies. That's just how you feel. I mean, I wake up like that, and that's why I go programming, it's therapy. This is how you're supposed to look at yourself. Lord, I do not see me in this space, but I know that you saved me to be part of your inheritance. You didn't save me to stay where I am. You saved me to take me to a place, to an existence that meets all your qualifications for eternal fellowship together. The riches of the glory of his inheritance. God so wanted this inheritance that he's had this entire drama of redemption. He subjected the entire universe to sin and death. And I don't know what that means beyond planet Earth, but the whole creation has been subjected to vanity, Romans 8. I'm not sure I know what that means. 
but I know it's true, whatever it is. He subjected the entire creation to vanity for one reason and one reason alone, to bring many sons to glory, Romans 8, the glory of his inheritance in the saints. This is something so near to the heart of God, so dear to the heart of God, that he has spent an entire universe on it. And more than that, he subjected his son to a bloody cross to bring it to pass. You should be praying that you feel this and know this for yourself and for others. We're the people of God, and here's a New Testament definition borrowing Old Testament terms and concepts to state it. The New Covenant Church of Jesus Christ is the realization of Exodus 19, 4 through 7. Do you live like it? 2 Corinthians, Paul actually quotes Leviticus 26, I will make my dwelling among them, I will walk, <clears throat> walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Interesting study in how the, the, the apostles use the Old Testament. You can see how Paul picked that out of those two verses. Leaves out, and my soul will not reject you. But he does bring in, I will make you my dwelling, I will also walk among you. And he quotes it as if it's one continuous line, but it's not. Sometimes the apostles just say, I'm going to take the salient points from the Old Testament and I'm going to bring them to bear on my theme. Interesting study, but what does it mean? Paul is quoting this Old Testament passage, Leviticus, that we looked at several weeks ago. He's quoting it in order to show the Old Testament foundation for this reality that we are the temple of the living God, as God said. He's taking an Old Testament definition of Old Covenant Israel, and he's applying it to a New Covenant people of God. I don't think that's the spawn of Satan, do you? I think that's actually New Testament or New Covenant theology. And God isn't so much leaving people behind as he's bringing the whole crowd of saved people into that permanent and ultimate future. And the whole entire New Testament tells you this. You see, Abraham was not in union with Christ, but he was a believer. He could not possibly be in union with Christ because Christ had not come into history. Not possible to be in union with him. But he had the spirit of God and he had faith. And in his life experience, he had not experienced what we experience since the resurrection of Jesus. And so if we just talk about human history, there's the life experience of believers before the coming of Christ, and then there's the life experience of believers after, and there's a quantitative difference. Not a qualitative, but a quantitative. And there's something that Jesus brings into history that changes things. And the New Testament is the expression of that. And that's why Jesus could say, hey, many kings and righteous men desired to see the things that you see, disciples, and saw them not. And to hear the things that you hear, and heard them not. Of all men born of women, there's none risen, none greater than John the Baptist. But he that is least in the kingdom of heaven, what Jesus has now established, he that is least, I have hope, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Look around. Everybody you're looking at who's a believer is greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because Jesus has established something in human history that was not there before. He has taken on a true humanity. 
And as a man, as a human being, he has died and he has risen and he has taken that humanity, that 160 pounds of DNA, and he's taken it into heaven and he's glorified it as the first fruits of all to come. And he's poured out his Holy Spirit and brought us to union with him. As Paul says in Ephesians, we're seated with him in the heavenly places. Abram did not experience that in his life history. But he's experiencing it now, isn't he? And so in the historical process of redemption, people experience different things according to where they are located in that history. But we all ultimately arrive at the same place. And the writer of the Hebrews establishes this. When he says this new covenant, part in, in part was there to deal with all the sins under the old covenant because the old covenant could not deal with them. Or Romans chapter 3, God declaring his righteousness because of the sins that were passed over in the forbearance of God and his current righteousness in Christ. Jesus Christ is the center of history and all of previous history finds its ultimate rectification in him. And all after he has come find their rectification in him so that all the people of God from all ages find their reality, their eternity in Christ and Christ alone. But we experience this now. We experience something that Abram, Abraham did not experience. We experience something that King David did not experience. They wrote of it. They knew it was coming, but they did not experience it. In David's day, they had to build a physical temple. They had a tabernacle in the wilderness. And that's where God's presence dwelt. In the new covenant, where does God dwell? In us. We are the temple of the living God, as God said in Leviticus 26. You cannot read the Old Testament properly unless you read it through the lens and glasses of the New Testament. Some of you have heard me say that you read the Old Testament chronologically forward, but you interpret the Old Testament backward. God is from the Old Testament planting an acorn in the ground, the acorn of redemption, and we watch it grow and come to fullness in the new. And that acorn in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and her seed and your seed. That promise of redemption, that acorn that was planted is the same tree that we see in the New Testament, in the New Covenant realities. We are the temple of the living God, as it says in Leviticus. And if you are, what agreement has a temple of God with idols? That was his point. You all need to live a holy life because why? Well, you're the temple of God, and you're the temple of God. It just didn't pop out of heaven. You're the temple of God because of what God started all the way back, at least in Leviticus and before. You are an heir of the history of redemption. You have promises that are beyond description. If you were to win the lottery today, that's nothing. That's nothing compared to being in Christ. It means nothing compared to being in Christ. We're the temple of the living God. Titus. I wish we could learn the song for this. It's, it's a cheery song, but we'll see one day. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing. Anyway, the song from Scripture. But here Paul gives one of his famous summarizations of the purpose of God in Christ. Here's what Christianity is. You're looking for that blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to do what? Redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify to himself 
a people for his own possession, zealous of good works. God said, I brought you to myself. The New Testament says you've been brought to Jesus Christ. Another one of those subtle <clears throat> threads in the New Testament that's impossible to deny that Jesus is the eternal son. He is Yahweh. To purify a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This terminology is right out of where? Exodus 19. Peter again, we're chosen, we're sprinkled with his blood. It's how he opens his letter. Understand your identity. And where did Peter get this terminology? Exodus. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Unmistakable terminology borrowed from where? Exodus. You see, the new covenant people of God are defined in these terms. We're to go into the Old Testament and see the richness of the terminology and that realize that the Old Covenant could not fulfill that identity. The Old Covenant could not save you, could not forgive your sins, could not give you the Holy Spirit, could not raise you from the dead, could not give you everlasting life. Not possible. But it pointed to it. It pointed to a covenant that would. And what is this terminology? Right out of Exodus. Treasured possession from among all peoples. Kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And think about it. You are my treasured possession. Old Israel was redeemed from bondage in Egypt and belongs personally to God. You are my possession. You see, if I was to crash a rental car, and I have done that. <clears throat> I was in... Uh, Minnesota, it was winter. I had to have rental cars. I was a consultant, traveled all the time for 20 years. But I was in Minnesota, and it's, there's like, I don't know, two feet of snow, and the parking lot of this place had, <clears throat> you know, ice on it, and I'm just not used to it. I'm, I come from South Carolina, and, you know, snow is exciting up there. Snow is boring and dull and awful. And I <clears throat> start going down this Little hill, I mean, it was, it was a hill like that. It was like nothing, you know? And then this car pulls up at the end of the hill and parks. I'm like, what are you doing? I'm trying to honk my horn. Not getting anywhere because they're, they're all frozen and locked in. And my car just slowly slides all the way down, smacks that car. But it was a rental car. What, you know, I was sad that it happened to this other guy, but it wasn't my car. I'd already paid the insurance for it, so I didn't have to worry about it. So it wasn't a big tragedy. But I remember when I was driving down the road with my brand new Volkswagen with diesel engine so I could get really great gas mileage. I'd had it about a month. I'm driving down the road, being nice and minding my own business. Some little old lady in her car just pulls out and smacks right in the side of me. Crash, boom. First time I ever broke a bone in my hand. Now that bothered me. Why? Because it was mine. You will be my treasured possession. You're God's. It matters. And how does Peter style us and borrows that language? We are a people for his own possession. The new Israel is redeemed from sin and death and belongs personally to God. You're his. It matters. You matter to him. Exodus says, from among all peoples, old Israel was chosen from among the nations to be God's peculiar people at that time. On a plane of fleshly Israel. But you, the new Israel... You're chosen from among all nations to be God's people. You're a chosen race. Do you understand that? Exodus 19, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. You're going to have access to God and standing before God, you will be invested with dignity and honor and station and 
Peter says you're a royal priesthood. That's why I, I believe that sense of priesthood is about standing and not about representation. Because he turns it into royal priesthood, the, the picture of a king's court, as I talked about before, with the royalty all around. And you, when you walked into court, you got dressed up because you had a meal on a plane that was acceptable to the king because you're dealing with the king. And God has clothed us in a righteousness that enables us to deal with the king of heaven. A royal priesthood, that's what you are. You're a holy nation. Peter just explains that specifically. The old Israel was a nation set apart from sin, idolatry, and the world unto God and righteousness, and so is the new. When you read the book of Revelation, you see about the idolatry. It's all throughout the book of Revelation, the idolatry of the world. But notice he says, you're a people. You were not a people, but now you are a people. So this whole theme of the people of God is just way important. And you've been called, ekaleo, or kaleo, called out of darkness, the ecclesia. Well, we don't have time for Hebrews. I was going to go through that a little bit more. But I just wanted to do the New Testament some justice on this. How in the New Testament we are the fulfillment of all these things. My brothers and sisters, let's say you won that lottery today and you had the winning ticket. Don't worry about how you're going to explain it to all your brethren that you're, you know, trusting in luck and not God, but that's okay. We'll, we'll put that aside. You got that ticket. You just won $100 million. Are you going to take that ticket and just say, oh, hey, hey, kids, here's a cool ticket. Why don't you all go take and look at it? Is that what you're going to do? You're going to take that ticket and just lay it down and say, yeah, it'll be there when I get back. Is that what you're going to do? What would you do with that ticket? You got to wait till Monday to redeem it. What would you do with that ticket for the rest of this day? guard it. For me, I'd be sticking it in my pocket and I'd have my hand in the pocket the whole day. Yeah, it's still there. Even though I can feel it, I go, yeah, it's still there. Right? You're an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Are you putting that in your pocket and holding on to it? Or are you just leaving it laying around? This is who you are. Are you living like it? Are you rejoicing in it? I mean, the worship in the Old Testament, I've been reading the last six psalms of the, of the psalms, just full of glory, full of blessing. Psalm 147, kind of cool. It goes praising God for who he is and then praising God for what he's done to praising God. It's like, okay, he doesn't have some continuous theme here. He's just all over the map. And all the things that God has done in his love and blessing to him and all the things God is in himself. So he'll go from God gives me food to God created the heavens. You know, well, he's giving me food and he's creating the heavens. And what you're supposed to do in that psalm is go, man, the God who made the heavens cares about my food. And the God who gives me food made the heavens. And you're supposed to rejoice in that. Are you rejoicing that you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession? Are you rejoicing in that? Or are you letting the cares of the world and the challenges of the world, Satan's fairy dust, and everything else you have to deal with every day, are you letting that blunt that, dim that? Are you shoving it aside, putting it on your dresser and forgetting about it and trying to live life apart from that? You cannot do it. You will not succeed. Embrace who you are. If you say, well, I'm not worth it, it's like, yeah, you're right, you're not worth it. You're not worthy of any of it. So just get past that. God knows you're not worthy of it. Satan knows you're not worthy of it, and he'll tell you every hour of every day if you listen to him. You've got a sneaking suspicion that you're not worthy of it yourself, so, okay, we're done with that issue. You're not worth it. You're not worthy of it. Put it aside. It's not an issue anymore. Embrace who you are. Embrace what you are. Live like it in faith, hope, love, boldness, confidence, joy, peace, activity. Be about the kingdom of God that God has made you a citizen of. That's how you honor the Lord in this. With faith and boldness.
and confidence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we just we thank you that these things are ours. And they are ours forever. Lord, just pray for every one of my brothers and sisters, me included, that we will all live in these things, rejoice in these things, love these things, understand these things, and be a witness to the world in these things. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.